Let us now open our Bibles. This morning we will turn to the Old Testament, <clears throat> turn to the prophecy of Isaiah. This morning we will read from Isaiah chapter 41. It's also in this chapter that we find our text of this morning. So chapter 41 of the prophecy of Isaiah, I think you find that in your pew Bible on page 764. Hear then the word of our God. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid the ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. When the poor and the needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together, and they should, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Set forth your case says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them, let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. 
Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed or terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know, and before him that we might say he is right? There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, Behold, here they are. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one among these. There is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Congregation, the text for this morning's sermon is found in the passage we read from, from Isaiah 41. And our focus will be on verse 9b and 10. And let us read the last half of verse 9 and the, all of verse 10 again. And there we read, You are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And so far the text. And after the proclamation, let us respond in song, singing from Hymn 55, the stanzas 1, 2, and 3. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, how often don't we have times when we feel somewhat overwhelmed by, by fear? It's the fear factor. Can truly paralyze us as as persons, as families, as members of this church, can easily become stressed out by one fear or another. Now we can say we are living in fearful times. We live in a, you can say, even a fear-driven world. It's so easy to be filled with fear when you consider what's going on in this world and think here the conflict in Gaza. Fear that it will spread to other places, to much of the Middle East, even to the rest of the world. It's a fear of conflict. It's, it's nothing new. A couple of weeks ago, we had Remembrance Day. Remember those who died in the great conflicts of the First and Second World War. And also could remember the fear that many experience in those times of conflict. And there are other fears. Think of the fears that Many believers experience because of persecution. Here we are living in relative freedom, but there are so many others who live in fear, fear of harassment, of torture, and even death. And then there are so many other fears which we as believers must deal with on a daily basis, the fear of, of being alone, the fear of, of sudden death, the fear of deadly disease, the fear of distressed relationships, of difficult financial times, an overall fear of the direction in which our, our culture and our country is going, and we realize that one has more fears than another, and yet then we have our text of this morning, and we have the wonderful words of the prophet of Isaiah, these words that he brings on God's behalf, 
Yes, out of the darkness of our fears, our anxieties, our, our troubles, our heartaches, there is this beam of light that shines so brightly when God says, do not fear, for I am with you. Indeed, the Lord God seeks to encourage his people then and also us now to be of good courage. Indeed, as we go forward into a new week, we do need to fear what is to come. And so let's hear God's word this morning summarized in this way. Have no fear, for God is near to us. And we'll look at the fear and then the faith. Yes, beloved, you might be wondering, should we really be paying too much attention to what's happening in this world? There are times when you get kind of tired of all what you hear in the media and you become fearful. And yet we as believers need to pay attention to what is going on in this world. For we as a church are not to be an island adrift on our own in this world. We need to realize the world in which we are living, yes, is indeed, is filled with, with a lot of instability. We see nations rising and falling in, in stunning ways. And as we will see then this morning, all these events are not outside of the control, outside of the plan of our Lord God. For in our, our reading of this morning, the Lord God wants us to think about who really is in control. In control of the course of history back then, but also in control of the current events of today. Now, when the prophet Isaiah spoke these words, the future looked really bleak for God's people. They had every reason, you might say, to be fearful. The superpowers of their time threatened to overrun them. The superpowers were the empires like that of Assyria and Babylon and Egypt. And the little nations like Israel and Judah were stuck in between them. And they would be taken out. In fact, when Isaiah was prophesying, Israel had already just been conquered by Assyria. Kingdom destroyed. Ten northern tribes were sent off into exile and Assyria never to be heard of again. And what about Judah, that other little kingdom? Well, Judah saw what was happening to the north, to Israel. It was a warning for them. In fact, you read through the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, you'll see that Isaiah repeatedly is warning Judah that similar disaster is going to come on them and that the Lord God would use that great rising empire, the Babylonians, to conquer Judah and take her people into captivity, into exile. Now we know, now when we know what happened to Judah at the hands of the Babylonians. We may wonder, like the people back then, who really is in charge? Is there anyone who is really taking care of God's people, God's chosen people? Would there be anyone who would eventually lead them out of captivity in Babylon, back to the promised land? You could see how they were thinking about all these things. And then as we can read here in this chapter, Isaiah 41, there is someone. 
And that becomes clear from what we read in the opening verse of, of Isaiah 41. Here we have God speaking through his prophet Isaiah. And he says, listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the people renew their strength. Let them approach. Let them speak. Let us draw near for judgment. So you might be wondering, who is Lord God speaking here to? He's speaking to the peoples of the coastlands. These are the unbelieving peoples, the Gentiles who lived in lands far away, but also nearby the promised land. And here we have the Lord God inviting these pagan nations to come, you could say, to a place of judgment, to a court of law. And he's calling them together to have them hear who really is in control of the course of history. Then this way they will be... They will be silenced. For really they have no say about who is directing and controlling the events of this world back then, but also today. These nations, they all have been on their, you could say, their power trips, defying God, but, but of themselves they're really powerless before the Lord God Almighty. There is no one who matches the Lord God of heaven in power and in might. And so to clear up any, any misconceptions about God, Isaiah's writing here of how our all-powerful God is the one who is involved in the direction and control of this world. This is the Lord God who is in the control of, of the course of history. Absolutely nothing lies outside of his control. For look at what Isaiah asks next. He asks there in verse 2 and following, Who, who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives nations before this person so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with the sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes safely on paths his feet has never trod. And then when he continues in verse 4 in the same vein, who, who has performed and done this, calling generations from the beginning? What we see here is that the prophet Isaiah is he repeatedly asking who, who is the one really directing all things? Who's the one, as it says there, who stirred up the one from the east, this coming conqueror? Who's the one who performed and done all these things? Just mentioned. Now Isaiah tells us, he gives us the answer, but there is one who is in, ultimately in charge. He tells us that at the end of verse 4. It is I... I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I, I am he. Indeed, it is the Lord God who is sovereign. And it is the Lord God, as we read here, who stirs up, who raises up a person, even a mighty ruler who would come from the east, whom victory meets at every step. It was the Lord God who would, would give nations up to this great conqueror. Now, you may have noticed here that the prophet Isaiah is speaking about someone, some, some ruler whom God would stir up, who, would, who God would raise up, who would conquer nations, who would crush kings under his feet. And you might be wondering, who is Isaiah talking about here? Well, what he's alluding to here is Cyrus. Cyrus, the great king of the Medes and the Persians. Just when you think Babylon is all-powerful, you got to hear there's someone else who's even more powerful who would even crush Babylon. Now, at this point in his prophecy, Isaiah doesn't mention him by name, but merely introduces him. He, 
He does it, and you can say, in a gradual, almost somewhat mysterious way. Soon, however, the prophet Isaiah will speak more clearly about this, this conquering king, this deliverer for Israel. And then at a certain point in his prophecy, he'll mention by name and the great work that he does for the people of God. And, and that's what you can read a little further on in this prophecy. You have chapter 44, chapter 45, chapter 46. There you'll see that name Cyrus is mentioned. Cyrus. And he actually mentions his his name, his specific name, 70 years even before this great ruler is born. But realize who the is one in control here, who directs all these things, also for the future. It's the Lord God. It's the Lord God who will, you could say, activate Cyrus the Great as the founder of the mighty empire of the Medes and the Persians. This is the Lord God who raises up this great great conqueror who's going to say rock the world scene who's going to conquer one nation and after another trample one king after another in fact god says of cyrus in in chapter 46 from the east i summon a bird of prey from a far off land a man to fulfill my purpose what i have said that i will bring about what i have planned i will do so you see, the Lord God's going to use Cyrus according to his plan, according to his plan of salvation, salvation for his people. Cyrus may probably not even realize all of this, but he was set here to do the Lord's bidding, to do what the Lord commanded. For it would be under, under Cyrus's rule that God's people were given permission to return from exile in, in Babylon. They would return to the safety of the promised land. They would rebuild the temple. They would rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And so you can see these are words of encouragement for God's people as they were heading into exile in Babylon. And they would be there for 70 years. And you could see how they would feel deflated, how they would be fearful about their future. And he's giving him them this, these words of encouragement, these words of, of hope. For yes, it is the Lord God who is ultimately in control. And he confirms that there in verse 4b. He says, I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. Yes, he is the first, you could say, first. Before all human history began to run its course, the Lord God was there. He was there from all eternity, and he is truly sovereign, and he is the one who's going to be there all the way till the very end. He is ruler forever, as it says there, yes, and with the last, I am he. Yes, the people of the last generations here on earth will not escape the presence of our Lord God. For he is indeed the eternal king who, who governs over everything. Sure, one generation succeeds another, yet before each generation, even the last generation to live here on this, this earth, the Lord God will still be present, forever in control, governing all things. And it would be under God's direction and control then that that great world ruler Cyrus would move forward and attack on one nation after another. And then as we're told here next in this passage, the coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and then come. Everyone, as it says here, helps his, his neighbor, says to his brother, be strong. So what we see here is in this news that is being told Yes, there's going to come this great ruler. The nations are filled with fear. 
They're trembling. This great ruler is going to come up against them. And so what do they do? You can say they, they come together, they band together. But notice they do not come before the Lord God, the Lord God of Israel. No, they seek their help elsewhere. They seek their help, as we can read it here, at the hands of the idols they themselves have made. Yes, they're going to help each other, going to support each other, and they're saying to each other, be strong, but look where they really seek their help from. They seek it with idols, and really what are these idols before the Lord God of Israel? And so you see, they don't turn away from these idols and turn towards the Lord God. No, they remained remain dependent on these idols, these gods of their own making. Talk about foolishness. And what are these idols? We're, we're told here a bit about these idols. These idols are, are the work of craftsmen. These idols are dependent, you can say, on the imagination of these craftsmen. And they all do their bit in bringing these gods, these idols, into existence. And eventually they finish their work of, of making these idols, and you could say these idols stand ready to be used. Yet these idols, these gods, are really no help to them at all. And so while the nations around Israel resort to these man-made gods, these idols, but we see here in our text that Israel is directed to the comfort they have and the only comfort they have in the living God. And yet what we have here indeed is, is a sharp contrast and that is made clear by, by the opening word of, of verse 8. If you look at our text, Isaiah 41, and you look at verse 8, we read, But, but you, Israel, my servant... Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abram, my friend. So here we see God is speaking, and he's speaking to his people, and he's speaking here what we'll see now, words of consolation, words of comfort, words of commitment. What we see here is the Lord God is willing to connect with his people and he longs for us to draw strength and support and salvation from him and him alone. Now notice, now notice here how God has Isaiah the prophet speak of Israel. He says, Israel, my servant. First mention here in this prophecy of God's people being his servant. You'll read more about servants in this prophecy. Cyrus, King Cyrus, I just mentioned earlier, a few chapters later, is also going to be called servant, a servant of the Lord. And then you go a little further on in this prophecy, come to that well-known chapter, chapter 53, you read also of another servant. He's called the suffering servant, and that servant would come many centuries later. Now here in, here in this passage, Israel is called by God, my servant. It's an honor to be called servant of the Lord. It's not a title of his name. No, it's a title of honor. Israel had been chosen to do a specific task, perform a specific task in this world. And what was Israel's task in this world? Well, remember, Israel was a distinct nation. You can read that back in, in Exodus, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a distinct nation, set here to show the glory of the Lord, 
to be that light in the midst of this dark world, as that is the task Israel has as a servant of the Lord. But we're also told more about, about Israel. It's also called, yes, Jacob, whom God has chosen. Remember Jacob, Father Jacob, Patriarch Jacob? He was chosen by the Lord. He was chosen not because of himself, not because of his, of his works. Remember, he was chosen by God's sovereign grace. Jacob really wasn't a wonderful man. And as for Jacob's descendants, Israel, they were also chosen not because of themselves, not because of their works, but again because of God's sovereign grace. Called, yes, then to serve in thankfulness, to serve by humbly doing the bidding of their Lord and Master. But there's more that's said about, about Israel. He's also said here to be the offspring of Abraham, my friend. Another patriarch is mentioned here. Another father from of old, Father Abraham. And here they're said to be the offspring of Israel, of, of Abraham. And indeed, that's what Israel was. It was the offspring of Abraham. But also note that Abraham is called here by God, my friend. And we know a lot about Abraham. He was indeed the father of, of the nation of Israel. God had established his covenant with Abraham and his offspring. But there's more here. He's also said to be his friend. Friends. That speaks of a very close relationship, an intimate bond. And that's the intimate bond that God had indeed with, with Abraham. And that's the same bond that he also would have with his people Israel. That's the same bond that he also seeks with, with every one of us. We're talking really close here. For we're also, as it says here, yes, offspring of Abraham. We're, we're also children of Abraham. Children of Abraham by faith. And what we see here is a devotion of the Lord God for Abraham. Real affection of the Lord God for Abraham, and not just them for Abraham, but also for his offspring, for his children. Even as they face, as we'll see here, very difficult times. As he says here, you whom I took from the ends of the earth, called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you, I have not cast you off. As God had taken hold of his people, you could say he had seized them, taken them in his hand, would not be able to escape his grasp. He grasped them actually from one from the ends of the earth, from the most remote parts of the earth. He would bring them back from exile, from captivity, even that faraway Babylon. Really nothing could stand in the way of the Lord's love and faithfulness towards his people. He would embrace them. He would love them. He wouldn't keep them at, at arm's length distance from himself. No, they are in the embrace of their loving God and Father. And in this way, they have no reason to fear. The nations around them were living in fear and trembling, but 
That is not to be so for God's people, the people of Israel. And in this way they would show themselves indeed to be distinct, to be holy, yes, different from, from all those around them. There's no need to be fearful. And that's what we have in that call there in our text. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, and I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. What beautiful words of encouragement to God's people then, but also to us now as we deal with fears of many different kinds. You hear that command. Fear not. Now you might be wondering a bit about that command, fear not. Is that actually correct? Don't we read in the Bible repeatedly that we're to live in the fear of the Lord? You probably think of a passage or two in, in, in God's word that says to us, yes, fear me. Now, and you realize the word fear can have more than one meaning. You can say there are, are two meanings for fear. There's, you could say, the, the negative meaning and the uh, positive meaning. There's that positive meaning, yes, to fear the Lord, that is to honor the Lord, to be in awe of the Lord, to reverence the Lord. But here in our text, you can say it's the negative meaning. We're told here not to be fearful, not to be afraid, not to be scared, not to be intimidated. Yes, we as God's children, as believers, as church, we need not be filled with fear. He says indeed very clearly here, fear not. And this actually is not a, a new command that the Lord God gives us here. From the fall and, and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, we all at one time or another give way to fear. Just think of our first parents there in the garden after they had eaten from the tree and then they heard the Lord God calling out to them. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God and then they were asked, and why? And then Adam answered, I heard the sound of you, O Lord God, in the, in the garden and I was afraid, I, I feared. And that struggle against fear has continued ever since. God knows his people well. And so he repeatedly gives that command throughout the Scriptures. This is why he once spoke to Abram, I am your shield and your great reward. Fear not, Abram. And the same was said to his son Isaac in a time of upheaval. I am the God of your father, Abram. Fear not, for, for I am with you, and I will bless you and multiply your, your offspring. And then there was the other patriarch, Jacob, you heard about earlier. He too had his times of doubt and difficulty, and yet the same word came to him from the Lord God, fear not. And now here we are dealing with their offspring, the offspring of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. We're talking here about God's covenant people, and the same command comes to them, yes, fear not, for I am with you. In fact, if you look throughout the prophecy that we are reading from this morning, you'll see that that command comes more often. You look in, in verse 10, very clearly says it there, fear not. But if you continue, if you check out verse 13, you read it again. 
Isaiah 41, verse 13, For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, Fear not. I am the one who helps you. And then if you look at the next verse, verse 14, same command. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. And then if you go a little further on in chapter 43, verse 1, you read the same. Isaiah 43, verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And in that same chapter, 43, you look at verse 5, and you see it again. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. And then we look at another chapter, chapter 44, verse 2. Thus says the Lord, who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour up my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. You see here, seven times roughly, in this part of this prophecy that the Lord commands his people not to fear. For indeed, as we said earlier, God's people back then faced so many fears. Fear of exile. Fear of trying to remain distinct in that foreign land. Fear of that journey home. And all the difficult tasks that came in rebuilding the temple and, and the city of Jerusalem. And mixed with all those fears were also their personal fears. And so they could hear these words that we have in our text. Yes, fear not. And what about us? As Abram's offspring, children of Abram by faith, Yes, know that those of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Beloved, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And God says also to us, yes, fear not. For he knows we are so easily filled with fear, fear about the future of the church. Will the next generation, our children, our grandchildren, yes, remain as living members of Christ's church? Or will we as church yes be facing increasing persecution? And what will become of this current conflict in the Middle East? Will this, will this conflict spread and intensify and seriously affect us? And what about all those other fears we have? Fears of, about our health, our, our well-being, of ourselves, of our loved ones. Fears of being able to afford to live be able to pay the rent, to buy the home, to pay the bills. There are also so many other circumstances in which we can be pulled down by fear. And yet we are told here by the Lord God, yes, fear not. And why not? For as God goes on to say so powerfully, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. Is what we have here are these wonderful promises of our God. God says it repeatedly. He says it, in fact, five times. I, I, I will do this. 
I will be there. Five powerful promises on which we can depend, on which we can rely as we go forward. We need not go forward in fear, but we need to go forward in faith, faith in God's promises. Also, these promises that we have here laid out before us. Look at each of those promises, beloved. First one says, Fear not, for I am with you. And the Lord God was always with his people, even as they were living in, a, in exile in a strange land. The Lord God of love, of mercy, is always with his people. In fact, God promised to be with his people in a special way in the future. You go back in this prophecy, you go back to chapter 7. There Isaiah prophesies, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall call his name Emmanuel. This was a sign from God that God would send his son into this world, that this son would be conceived in human form. He'd come in human form, he would be conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And then as we're told in Matthew 1, and he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And yes, thanks to this one who has come, the Lord Jesus Christ, we've been reconciled to our God. And then we can also say, God with us. It's thanks to his atoning work, each one of us can say, yes, God is with us. In Jesus Christ, he is with each one of us. He's right beside you and me every day and every trying circumstance we face. Really nothing, absolutely nothing can separate us from our, our God. No reason for us to be in fear. And then he continues, he also promises, do not be dismayed for I am your God. He also promises to be the God over us, sovereign over each and every one of us. He is indeed far greater than any of our fears. Being sovereign, yes, he directs all things for our good. Yes, he's going to turn to our good whatever adversity he sends us in this life. And we all know times of adversity. Again, yet no reason for us, for any of us to fear, knowing that God is directing everything from above. And then he also promises here, yes, I will strengthen you. It's not the first time that you read this in, in this prophecy. You just go back a chapter, chapter 40, the very end. You have that well-known promise there. God says, yes, that he will give power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. That those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. That's said already in chapter before. Here it comes back again. God will give us the strength we need to deal with the fears that we face each day. And how does he strengthen us? He strengthens us from within through the working of the Holy Spirit. Yes, the Spirit works in our hearts and so in our lives. Yes, thanks to Jesus Christ, we have received the Spirit and he's at work in us. He's strengthening us. And in this way, he helps us overcome our fears. 
But there's more that he promises. He also says, I will help you. And God did help his people back then. As we saw earlier, he would send someone who would help bring them back to the promised land. As we heard earlier, God would arouse one from the east who would come in power so that the nations around would be trembling. And we got to hear who that conqueror was. That was Cyrus. He'd be used by God to help his people. It would be under his decree that they would come back and rebuild the temple, rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And this is the same God, beloved, who also helps us. And he helps us in so many ways. And he helps us through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, yes, he was one who, who was not filled with fear, but he was filled with faith. Yes, we need to hold fast to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for he has given us a spirit not of fear, but of, of power, of love, of self-control. He is the one who helps each one of us to build up this, this church of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Even in the face of our many fears, we're there to support one another, to help one another. And then there's more that he promises. He says, I I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now, as we know from Scripture, to hold your, up your right hand shows that you have, have power, you have might. And then he also adds that it's a righteous right hand and shows that God's might and power works in a righteous way. And we can see that the Lord God is righteous. He's just, he's fair in his dealings with us each and every day. We can rest assured in that knowledge. And he is the one who then who upholds us, who, who upholds us from underneath. He lifts us up and he's the one who, who, who carries us, and directs us in, in the right way, in the good way. It's in his providence he, he upholds us in whatever circumstances we find ourselves. Oh, yes, we so easily give in to fear. But there is no reason to live in slavish fear. Let us look away from ourselves and look more and more to, to God and to his promises. It is in Jesus Christ that these promises that God gives here come true for us. By faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, we can overcome any fears we may face. Yes, in Jesus Christ, we may share in his, his divinity, in his majesty, in his grace, in his spirit. Yes, in him we have everything we need. Sure, there are many different circumstances which could cause us to be filled with fear. Yes, the world events of these days make us nervous. The spiritual challenges our children and our grandchildren face make us insecure. Setting out on new ventures makes us somewhat frightened. We're facing the end of our life. Very difficult. Yes, so many things threaten our faith in God. They bring up fear into our souls. But remember when the Lord says, fear not and do not be dismayed. Yes, he provides his solid sovereign support with his power, with his promises, with his presence. He is the one who is within us. He's above us. He's beneath us. He's beside us. 
He truly envelops us. And so we overcome fear by resting in our God, in His sure promises. Yes, we have abiding security thanks to Jesus Christ. Through Him we receive the, um, you could say the ultimate assurance that He is with us. He will never leave us, never forsake us. Yes, as we will sing to God shortly, Though Satan's wrath besets our path, and worldly scorn assails us, while you are near, we will not fear. Your strength shall never fail us. Your rod and staff shall keep us safe and guide our steps forever. No shades of death nor hell beneath your people from thee sever. Amen. <laughs> 